Salvation Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Okay, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. We are going to get started here. I entitled it Time Travelers of the Moedim. There's the principle there that on Shabbat and then on the feast days that basically you're living outside of time. Um, those particular days really aren't counted against the number of your days because you've stepped into eternity when you celebrate the feast. And by feast, of course, we mean the, the seven Moedim of Israel, Passover, Unleavened bread, first fruits of the barley, first fruits of the wheat, or Shavuot, Pentecost. Um, then moving over into the seventh month or the fall of the year. Of course, we celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, uh, the Day of Coverings, also known as the Day of Atonements, Yom HaKippurim, and then Sukkot. And so even though we're, we've put Sukkot in the rearview mirror, at least in the natural realm, we really haven't put Sukkot in the mirror in the spiritual realms, because uh, remember, we stepped into clouds of glory, right? And so just kind of looking at some of the, the ways that we've looked at the Song of Songs over the, the past several months, especially as we went, or went into chapter three. So who are these 60 mighty men? Well, the, the Midrash gives us a clue that it might be a representative number, just like the 144,000 in Revelation. It tells us it's a representative number because it's it's first fruits representing whatever number that would be. You multiply 144,000 times whatever it takes to get the full field. They're saying that the 60 mighty men, that these are actually the 60 myriads, the 600,000 that came out of Egypt from the age of 20 years and above and below and below. Now you can check on this Exodus 12, 37, Numbers 11, 21, Numbers 1, 46, Exodus 38, 26. But they point out a little anomaly in the way that it's worded in Song of Songs 3, 7. It says 60 warriors around it of the warriors of Israel. But as you read it in the Hebrew, describing them, there is uh, this Hebrew preposition and then the prefix mem. So it's word at, read as from. So you'd say, instead of of the mighty warriors of Israel, you would say from the mighty warriors of Israel. And so that's what they said about these 600,000, that there were descendants of the 600,000 warriors of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Remember, there's 600,000 that come out, another generation. They will father descendants. So they're saying it's a representative number of these 60 myriads in the wilderness, not only of the literal number who came out, but of their descendants. So the implication is that at the time of the greater exodus, there will also be 60 myriads of mighty warriors that are descended from the original 60 myriads of the 12 tribes who came out of Egypt. And so it, it kind of shows you that, again, Jacob's prevailing over the angel 
it was a way of prophesying that his descendants would come out of the night of exile. Some of them are going to be more expert than others as they come out. Some of them are going to be better with the sword, but they're all there. They're all there. And that's what it says in Revelation, even though it looks like maybe the tribe of Don is missing from that list in the book of Revelation. If you read carefully, it says they're all there. All the tribes are there. He, th that name is missing and Ephraim is missing for a reason, but it doesn't mean they're missing from the group. So nobody's going to be missing that should be there. It's just that for those of us who are committed to the word, we want to be expert in the book of wars because we don't know what Yeshua is going to call on us to do in the kingdom. We don't know, you know, how could he send you out to bind, you know, a, a, a nation? And I'm not even thinking as big as nation. You know, what if he sent you out to a, a little community that said, okay, we, we, we know the basics of the word, but apparently we've missed some biggies too. So Yeshua, could you send us someone to instruct us? Could you send us a warrior of the word? who could help us to understand the iron of his word. And so who will he send? He can only send those who understand that word and know how to coach them and teach them how to apply that word. And it's going to have to be somebody who has the proper relationship to the rod of iron, somebody who can show them the grace in the iron, that it's safety, that it's security, and that it's life. Someone who's not going to be smashing things up unnecessarily. Some things have to be smashed with the rod of iron. You better let Yeshua be in charge of that part because we tend to smash things that shouldn't be smashed. <laughs> but I know I'll have more to learn. You know, I'm sure I will before he could ever trust me to go, you know, do something that important. But what little bit we learn, we pass it along. And if you learn it, be faithful to pass it along because you're practicing here in the wilderness. You're practicing because maybe he will have a big job for you in the kingdom because a day is, of judgment is coming. And so we want to prepare for that day of judgment that is coming. And one of the biggest things we can prepare people for now, we don't have to wait until the kingdom is set up. We can tell them now the instructions of the word, and especially we can begin to tell them now about the appointed times, because so many who do read the word, they really don't understand the appointed times at all. They only have a vague notion of maybe what Passover or Shavuot are about. And, and this is the whole story of our salvation, of our redemption, of our sanctification. And so helping them to understand the appointed times is important. Helping them to understand that, that when we walk in these feasts, we really are time traveling, that we're going all the way back to the fourth day of creation. If you'll remember, the sun, the moon, and the stars were put in place on the fourth day of creation. It says, for the sake of the Moedim, for the sake of the Moedim, Though this isn't just seasons, it's the seven feasts of Israel. So even before the man was created, the feasts, the time spaces for the feasts existed. And here's the great picture. This really helps. There was light on the first day of creation. Yes, sun, moon, and stars on the fourth day. But there was already light on the first day. It was a different kind of light. 
there was a spiritual light on the first day of creation. The sun, the moon, and the stars are physical signs of the Moedim. But before the physical signs, there was time because it's a day. There was evening, there was morning, day one. There was a measure, there was a midah of time. So he separates the light from the darkness. And the earth has light at that time, but it's not dependent upon the sun or the moon. The plants started growing on the third day of creation before there's a sun, moon, or stars. What does that tell you? That there is a light beyond the physical sign. And this is what we need to emphasize to folks who haven't yet internalized the iron of the Moedim, that just walking in the Moedim, in the physical realm, that's not all there is to it. You were actually walking in a spiritual realm that existed even before the sun, the moon, and the stars. Those plants were trees of righteousness, right? The plants were already growing on the third day. And so on the fourth day, yeah, the physical signs for the sake of the Moedim, but they're representing something that already exists. It's a proto-prophecy. There are going to be exiles of the night where we can't spiritually discern the appointed times as in the kingdom of heaven. If you'll notice in our Torah portion this week, Noah, Noah was, um, he was, I guess, uh, comforted, which that's what his name means, by the way, with a reiteration that, okay, Noah, come on out of the ark. And from now on, you know, Day and night will not cease, um, cold and heat, winter and harvest. Uh, these things aren't going to pass from the earth. He had to be assured because if you think of all that time he spent in the ark, in the darkness, how would he have kept track of time? Had he known the appointed times, and I believe he did, how do you keep track of it when there is no physical sign that you can focus on, when the, when the storms are so great? How do you how do you estimate time? So he comes out and he's told, okay, here's a reset. Okay, the day and the night, they're not going to cease. I want you to be able to tell the appointed times. But I suspect that even in that arc, in perhaps times of total darkness, I don't know how many candles he had, <laughs> but I suspect that there was a spiritual discernment of the appointed times. I think maybe Noah. He knew the Shabbat, even inside the ark, when it was really difficult to rely on sun, moon, and stars because they would have been blotted out, not visible. But see if before the sun, moon, and the stars, then there is a spiritual discernment of the appointed times that does not depend upon them. Right now, we depend upon them. And you're saying, wait a minute, how do you expect me to know Shabbat? How do you expect me to know Passover and Shavuot and Sukkot? If I don't have the physical sign to see, well, right now you need it. You do. But the, the reason you need it now is to remind you every single day, every single phase of the moon, every single revolution around the sun, every movement of the, the, the constellations, it's to remind you that one day there will be light beyond what you can see. And see, we've lost even the physical, you know, the, the people of faith a huge number of them have lost the handle on the importance of these eternal times. 
And then some of us, we bend over the, the other way. We put way too much emphasis on the physical signs. We, we get into arguments over the minutia. We get into strife over the minutia of the signs. And it's actually leading you away from the goal of developing a spiritual perception of what these times are actually for. These are openings to obedience that will stand eternally. If you remember workbook one, but see in the reign of King Messiah, we are going to have to be prepared to go out and to coach people once again, not just to look for the physical signs of the sun, moon, and the stars, but of the light beyond them that is represented by the sun, the moon. There is a spiritual realm that is represented by the sun, the moon, and the stars for the sake of the Moedim. And you can't bypass one to get to the other, right? It's They have to work together because we're human beings and this is the way we were designed. Jeremiah 8, 7 says, even the stork in the sky knows her seasons, her Moed. And the turtle dove, the swallow, and the crane keep the time of their migration, but my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. How many people do not know the judgment of the Lord that is embedded in these appointed times? We don't even know as much as a stork. <laughs> you say, at least get smart as a stork. At least know the appointed times and you know how they are set in their seasons according to the sun, the moon, and the stars. Because I need you to get that much. If you're going to understand this, Revelation 21, 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it. No need. For the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Remember, your word is a lamp to my feet. How do you get to know the appointed times? Through the lamp of the Lamb, through the lamp of the living word. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. See, they can be reset. They can be reset. You'll have to help them understand the sun, the moon, and the stars. And then to see beyond, to, to basically wind the clock back to the first day when there was heavenly light and there was spiritual light. It says, in the daytime, for there will be no night there, no night, no more exile, no more walking away from your feast, no more walking away from the word of Adonai, no more walking away from your inheritance. Its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So you see, having your name written in the Lamb's book of life is, is part of the package here of knowing what the word says, knowing what the word says is unclean, so you don't do those things. Knowing what the word says is an abomination, so you don't do those things. Knowing the word says you shouldn't lie, because the word says you shouldn't do those things. This is a place where people experience the feasts without the need of the sun, the moon, their stars, because their internal spiritual timepiece has not just been reset, 
there's a veil that's taken away so that they can see the spiritual aspect that, that you really have become a time traveler. When you celebrate the feast and the Sabbaths, you are going beyond the limitations of the universe around you. You are stepping into a different realm. And then Revelation 22, 1, it says, he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. So you see, this is the point of the feast right now. You take on faith that when he wrote that iron word, that immovable word, he wanted to move us. And he wanted to move us to a place where we could begin to perceive like these, this tree of life. It bears 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit every month. But he says there's no sun or moon. Well, how does a tree know what month it is? If there's no sun or moon, it doesn't know the season. It doesn't know the month which tells you that we as trees of righteousness can attain a place where we know what time it is. We know how long a month is without a sun or a moon. That's the whole point. He gives you the physical in order to draw you to the spiritual so you can see his face. If you refuse to even see the physical signs, how do you expect to see his face ever? So, yeah. It really never was a matter of whether the Torah was life and instructions and godliness. It always has been. It's only been a question of whether the human beings perceived its seasons and brought forth its fruits. So as we are coming up from the wilderness of the peoples, we're traveling in clouds of glory or Sukkot of glory. We're learning the Torah of Moses blessedly, he's given us this time out here in the wilderness of the peoples so that we can become more educated. We can become more expert with his word. So we can begin to bring forth fruit with the spirit, just like Yeshua promised us at, at Sukkot. He stood up and says, I am these rivers of Eden. Come to me. And you can be one of those trees that knows it's time and doesn't even need a sun or a moon. So we're not just marking time here. We're not just like, oh, Lord Yeshua, please come back. <laughs> oh, Father, send Yeshua, please send him hurry. We're, it's so tough here. No, he's saying make use of this time out here in the wilderness of the peoples. Let that word transform you because you're already dwelling in Sukkot. Now, it's a privilege that you do celebrate as the seventh feast in the seventh month. We mark it. Uh, in that way, by entering into a sukkah for seven days. But we have to remember, if he has drawn us out of Egypt and brought us into the wilderness of the nations, then we are already dwelling in Sukkot daily. And this is what those seven ushpizin are said to do, the, these seven shepherds and the eighth prince. They come to us during the Feast of Sukkot 
one each night, and they said, how have you dwelled in clouds of glory? How have you dwelled in Sukkot of glory? They don't want to know just how you dwelled that day. They want to know how well you dwelled in Sukkot of glory all year long. They want to know if you've dwelled in the spirit of glory and whether you understand that this world is just it's just a, a natural physical vessel. That's all it is. It's just a physical vessel. But he wants you to start seeing beyond that physical vessel that you're walking in. And so I hope that that we were kind of, like I say, we're taking a glance in the rearview mirror here. Say, well, we just came through Sukkot, but you know what? You're still in it. And next year at Sukkot, the seven shepherds are going to come through your sukkah and they're going to say, okay, since last Sukkot, how well have you dwelled in clouds of glory? And you want to say it is well. I have dwelled well in clouds of glory. I've made some mistakes. I've made some errors. But you know what? I fixed some things too. I've been diligent in your word. And by your spirit, you've shown me places where I've been a rebel, where I haven't really shown people how much grace is in the iron. Because if they don't see the grace in the iron, you can see why they would be a little afraid of it. We, we might be smashing up pots <laughs> with the Torah that don't, they're not ready to be smashed yet. Not ready. Some things we wait for Yeshua, but remember, it's his word. If you speak that word with the love that you feel for Yeshua and your salvation, then I think that's when they see the grace in the iron, because you're not going to be a person who's ever confused by where the, the guardrail is. You're not going to be a person who habitually drives off the edge of the mountain and takes a tumble to the bottom, <laughs> because you become expert. And then people will begin to see you as that expert. And when they find themselves in a, in a war, they will turn to you and they will seek your counsel. They will seek your advice because it doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means you have a proper relationship to the commandments of iron. And sometimes people get to the end of themselves and they quit asking, how can I get around this commandment? And they start asking, how can I keep it? Because it's safe. It's strong. It's secure. It's everlasting. It's immovable. And I can see that there is a rod of iron in you. If that iron is in you, they will see even on your bad days, you are unbending in your faithfulness to the Holy One. And that's what I want for you. I want you to be that light to them. because. As you know, they lose faith in the world around them, the ever-changing rules of this world, some of them are going to get a belly full of it, and they're going to look and say, is there anybody here who is unbendable and who can teach me about what the Holy One, what the creator of the universe, what he has set his foundation on? All right, so what I'd like to do today is kind of finish up some ideas and, you know, we, we kind of looked at time travel, uh, setting the stage there with the feasts and the children of Israel coming up out of the wilderness. And so this week, I'd like to take a little bit of the Torah portion, uh, Lech Lecha, and uh, show you a, a little bit of something there in the promise to Abraham that is going to help us to 
match it with what we've been learning about the footsteps of Messiah, because we know the footsteps of Messiah, they are um, linked to the Song of Songs, because it is, and and I'll show you this um, in the lesson today, the Song of Songs is considered the Holy of Holies of the Bible that there is a certain intimacy that's revealed there that's that's not revealed in a that particular way in other books of the Bible. Uh, but I'm going to show you how this coming up from the wilderness is related to the prophecies that are given to Abraham in this week's Torah portion, Lech Lecha, because it goes beyond just the promise of the physical land. I mean, you know, if it's just a physical land, why would you go through all that hardship? Uh, why not just let whoever wants it have it? You know, if it's just rocks and dirt and stones and uh, trees and things. But if it's something much deeper, if it's something much more significant, perhaps it is worth hanging on century after century after century to that promise. And we're not going to try to go over the entire Torah portion of Lech Lecha. But we're going to review a couple of things from Lech Lecha so that we can relate it back into our our footsteps of Messiah, of Israel coming up from the wilderness and really getting into these beautiful prophecies of, of what that looks like in the Song of Songs. So in Genesis 17, 1 through 8, at this point in the Torah portion, we know that Abraham and Sarah had just done a stint in Egypt Um, little problem there in Egypt, but they're back. And if you'll remember, as we've gone through these lessons, and it's so important, if if you jump in in the middle, you're going to feel like you missed a whole lot, and you did. It doesn't mean you can't appreciate what we're doing today, but it means that you'll appreciate it a whole lot more if you'll go back to the beginning of the footsteps uh, playlist so that you can see how we've built layer upon layer of understanding especially about the wilderness of the peoples, how there is a particular exile thought to be the last exile uh, alluded to as the wilderness of Egypt or the wilderness of the peoples. And so when we see Abraham and Sarah, or at this point he's Avram, uh, coming back from Egypt is prophecy. You can see the children of Israel you know, in terms of helping us understand the wilderness of Egypt, where he's contending with us, the wilderness of the peoples, that in that final wilderness, there will be an understanding of our promise, that he's going to bring us out of Egypt and take us to the land of our promise, which is what he does with Avram. He he takes him back. He was in the land, then he went down to Egypt, and now he comes back up. Same thing with us. Um If we were among those standing there um, receiving the covenant, even though we weren't there, we were there, is what scripture says, then we were in, then we were out, and now we're still out, but we're going to go back in. He's preparing us. Uh, So it says, when Avram was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Avram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. If your translation says perfect, it it doesn't mean necessarily like 100% without flaw. It means to be a person of integrity, 
So he says, walk before me and be a person of integrity that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Avram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Avram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And there's our point. If the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, as he's referring to it right here, if it's really just dust and rocks and mountains and trees and a few lakes, then really, what's the big deal? Why would you want that as an inheritance for your offspring? Wouldn't you want something a little better? But this is, this is something better. Because the understanding is the reason the land of Israel is so important even as we're looking at the, the natural, physical land itself, the understanding that this is part of the, the plan that Adonai had to restore mankind to the garden, what the first Adam forfeited, we know the second Adam came to restore. And so this is part of that whole process. It's part of that plan. He wants Abraham and his offspring, offspring people of integrity, to possess the land of Canaan and not just the natural land. That's just part of the plan. The fullness of the plan is to also be able to open the realm that's hovering just above it so that they could function in that place like Adam and Eve did at the beginning, where they can move back and forth between the natural and the spiritual realms, like Yeshua. Yeshua is an example. He could go in and out at will. It was no problem for him. And he told us, you, you can't go where I'm going right now, but you will know the way. You know the way. You'll, you'll be there. And it, because he knows that, because this is part of the promise that was given to Abraham, that eventually this would be an everlasting possession, that we would be resurrected from the dead, and that we would be able to function in this original land that Elohim wanted us to have. He hasn't changed his mind. He still wants us to live there, but he knows that we can't live there in sin and impurity, doing abominable things and dragging our own rules into this garden. No, he had to purify us. He, he asks us to walk after him as people of integrity, according to his word. And then when Yeshua comes and saves us, at this point, we inherit eternal life. The question is, what will be the quality of that eternal life in the garden? Because we know there's different places in the garden. And as we move along in this study, we're going to look at some of the pictures of possibilities of places or, or yeah, places that we might find ourselves in the garden after the resurrection of the dead. Let's look at one more little passage here. 
And Abraham is told in Genesis 13, 17, yeah, Genesis 13, 17, arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. So you say, well, why does he just need to keep telling Abraham he'll keep doing this? I mean, like he said he would, and then all these things keep happening, and he keeps reassuring Abraham, it's it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Well, each of those times that he tells it, he's revealing to us a little bit different aspect of prophecy. And in this particular verse, where he says, arise, which in, in Hebrew would be kum, which is like, get up, uh, you know, kind of shake off your sleep. We know that Abraham is already in the land. He's been in the land, but he's told to do something in particular. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Well, if he's already there, why does he need to get up? You see what I'm saying? He can already walk about the land. Why does he need to arise? Well, we know this is a, a, a word that can be used in prophecy. Sometimes it just means what it means. It just means get up. Other times, it's prophecy of resurrection. Other times, it's prophecy of get up from the natural realm and look into spiritual realms. See with your spiritual eyes. And that's what's going on here, because this time he wants Abraham to see this inheritance that it is about more than just the rocks and the dirt and the lakes and the trees and the crops. It's about much more than that. It's about something that's there that is not at this point perceived with the physical eye. But he wants to show this to Abraham. He's saying, Abraham, your descendants can inherit eternal life. Your descendants can inherit the resurrection. And I want you to see what that's going to look like. So there's no telling what Abraham saw on that walk. He was able to see the actual inheritance. He was able to see beyond just the physical land of Israel. He was able to see their restoration to the garden. And that's what made it so desirable for his offspring, right? So with that said, let's kind of get back into our footsteps path. And remember, we've worked through Song of Songs chapter three, where the question is, who is this coming up from the wilderness? And as we've unpacked layer after layer, we're saying, well, oh my goodness, this is Israel coming up from the wilderness. And once we understand there's a wilderness of the peoples, we realized that it wasn't just Israel coming up from the wilderness during the time of Moses and Joshua. This is the children of Israel coming up from Egypt and the wilderness of the peoples during the time of the footsteps of Messiah. So we've been working through chapter three. We've worked through this. Uh, behold, like what is this coming up from the wilderness? Who is this? Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon, 60 warriors around it of the warriors of Israel. All of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. All right, we unpacked that. So we saw that these mighty warriors of the sword were people who were mighty in the word, the sword of the word. And they were guiding the children of Israel against the terrors of the night, 
which is the terrors of their exile in the wilderness of the peoples. So these people know what's up with the word. And they're trying to stand between the the Israelites who are less skilled in the word and the terrors of the exile, which threatened to just suck them out there into the darkness. And then it brings us to the next two verses, which is Song of Songs, chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. And you'll read different translations of this, and we'll look at, find there's a particular translation, uh, because the question has to do with um, who was the, the chair or the sedan made for, right? And the question might be, what is a sedan? What is this chair? We'll look at that too, so we can nail that down. Um, But it says, King Solomon has made for him a sedan chair from the timber of Lebanon. And in the weeks to come, we'll also look why the timber of Lebanon. It's important. Uh, He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, and its seat of purple fabric with its interior lovingly inlaid by the daughters of Jerusalem. So there's not one idle word in that that entire passage. Going through this and finding the beauty and the significance of these prophecies, it should inspire us that even if we are in the wilderness of the peoples, that yes, we do need to be mighty with the sword, which is mighty with the word of Adonai. And we need to consider ourselves daughters of Jerusalem, because that's what's special about the daughters of Jerusalem. If you've ever wondered, like, okay, why does it say sometimes Zion, sometimes it'll say Israel, sometimes it'll say Jerusalem? Why? Why the different terms? Well, there's something special about Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the the focal point of the three pilgrimage festivals. That's why we laid that groundwork last week about knowing the appointed times. Because if you know the appointed times, you know that it is your duty as an Israelite to make your pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year. Now, if we're in the exile, that might be a challenge. It might be a challenge just to make it once in your lifetime. So in that case, you rehearse where you are and you do everything you can. You you set aside a Jerusalem jar and you start saving up. So if you can only spend one in your lifetime, you try to put your feet within the feet of the holy city, just like Joshua and Caleb. They went into Israel and they gave a good report in spite of what they saw. They gave a good report and they were the two who were, you know, privileged to come back because they tried to get their feet in there, give a good report of what they saw, they were able to go back, them and their children. So that's what we want for you too. We want you to get your feet into the land at least one time, come back and give a good report of what you see, no matter what you see. And we want you to inherit. We want you to come up from the wilderness with your children to your inheritance, to your home. So the the significant thing about the daughters of Jerusalem, whether you're male or female, you're a daughter of Jerusalem, if you love uh, going up at the feasts, because that's where your mind is. You know, what do you say next year in Jerusalem when you celebrate the feasts? And that's the point. 
so that we never forget where our inheritance is. So the daughters of Jerusalem are the ones who lovingly inlay this interior of this traveling sedan chair. So we will look at the different components, you know, in the weeks coming, like I said, we're going to look at the different kinds of gold. This week, we want to look at this purple fabric. Uh, we don't have time to completely unpack it, but I can give you the passage in Exodus where this is a match to, where you can understand that this passage is specifically alluding to the Mishkan, or it was called the tabernacle, the Mishkan in the wilderness. It was a movable vehicle for the presence of the Most High. And so this is another way of saying, just as the Israelites made a Mishkan, they made a movable vehicle for the presence of the Most High among them. He's saying here, King Solomon has made for him a sedan chair, a movable vehicle from the timber of Lebanon. And we'll, we'll look at why the timber of Lebanon, because we know acacia wood was what the Mishkan was made of. Well, they're cousins. Uh, one is going to be the, the poor, lowly, humble desert cousin called the acacia. And one is going to be the noble, tall, mighty, strong uh, cedar or cypress of Lebanon, showing two parts, you know, on the, the spectrum of our growth as a people. Right now we're in the wilderness. We're moving in the wilderness. So we're, we're our bones are really more of the, the lowly acacia tree. But once he plants us in Jerusalem, then we're going to realize that we were mighty timbers of Lebanon all along. So beautiful, beautiful. Here's a picture. I don't, as I'm sure not what's being described here, but uh, you could kind of get a visual here of maybe the gold and then the purple fabric of the moving sedan chair, whatever it may have looked like, because I don't think it looked like this. Um I think what you're supposed to see here is something a little bit more like a chariot, a little bit more like a chariot. So let's unpack it where it says in another translation, a canopy has King Solomon made for him from the wood of Lebanon. In its pillars, he made of silver, its covering was gold, its seat was purple wool, its inner side was decked with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. So here they're calling it a canopy. So it seems like the translators from the Hebrew, they can't really decide what it is they're reading about. Um, so we'll take a look. Why is this the only place this particular word is used in scripture? And what can we learn about it? But, it, it, you know, from the text, one thing they say is one reason that the Song of Songs is, is considered the Holy of Holies of Scripture is because it's just like the heart of the Torah is the book of Leviticus that describes the, the functioning of the Mishkan, the, the place where the Holy Presence was. In the same way here, um, this particular structure, this canopy, couch, sedan chair, whatever, whatever you want to call it, it's made for the presence of the Holy One. And so they're making this connection that um, this thing called an apiron, apiron 
in Hebrew, that's what this thing is. So is it a canopy? Could be. Is it a sedan chair? Could be. We know it's a traveling chair. That much we know about it. But it's seen as a connection to the Mishkan itself, that this holy uh, presence that moved with the children of Israel in the wilderness, that there's a, a connection here. And uh, when it says King Solomon, Melech Shlomo, that means the king to whom peace belongs. So that's seen as referring to Adonai. And having them build the Mishkan and the wilderness was how he made peace with, he was pretty angry with them. Moses had a time getting not just the, you know, the forgiveness, but the atonement for the sin there in the wilderness. And so they start building the Mishkan. And so this estrangement that set in after the golden calf, they were able to repair some of that by constructing the Mishkan and arguably entering, entering into the, the golden months of Israel. There's, has Israel ever been in such unity as they were as the time that they were building the Mishkan? It's hard to find anything that compares to it. So this strange word, apiron, uh, it is used only once in scripture, and they guess. They're not for sure what word it comes from, because, you know, Hebrew words tend to have a three-letter root or shoresh. Sometimes it's a two-letter. So they speculate that it's from para or para, which are kind of sound alikes. But, it, you know, whatever it is, it means to be carried quickly. That's what it means to be carried quickly. So depending on your translation, you might've been reading along and said, wait a minute, my translation says it's a chariot or mine says it's a sedan or mine says it's a, it's a litter. Uh, you know, the kind that they carried Kings and Queens around like Cleopatra, you know, carried around on people's shoulders. But we do know that whatever it is, that it is something that is carried quickly. It's supposed to be agile, something that's maneuverable, movable quickly. And Yeshua told us, if this is what's coming up from the wilderness, about to cross over and for the children of Israel to move with that divine presence and then go back into their inheritance that's promised to Abraham, then it's possible we're understanding a little bit better what Yeshua is saying in Revelation 22, 7 and 22, 12. He says, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to reward each one as his work deserves. Right. So for 2000 years, pretty much the big conversation about Yeshua has been his salvation, that he provided salvation from death, sin and death. But Yeshua never just dropped it there when he talked about himself and what he came to do in the Gospels. He told so many parables about reward. So there's there's two considerations. Yes, you want to be saved. You want definitely want to be saved. You want to be redeemed. You don't want uh, to miss out on eternal life in the garden with Yeshua. But 
what will you be doing? How will you spend eternity? And this is a question that goes beyond salvation. How will you spend eternity? Typically, that person is asking that question because they're about to, to render a salvation message of Yeshua. But we can also ask the same question. How will you be spending eternity? Because one aspect of Yeshua's return is that he's bringing a reward, and he's going to reward each one as his work deserves. So at, at this point, if we spent way too much on the salvation question and we didn't work on our discipleship, that might be disturbing. We might have a realization, oh my goodness, you know, I just kind of camped out on salvation, but I never did what he told Abraham. I, I never really became a person of integrity. I was up and down, in and out, round and round. <laughs> At any given time, how, how would somebody point to me and say that, that I'm an example of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, that I've grown in my integrity in the word, that I'm a mighty warrior with the sword of the word? That's a question we need to ask ourselves, uh, especially as you know we're embarking upon kind of a, a darker season of the year, at least where we are. And now we go into preparation mode for the spring feasts. Those will be the next big things on our radar. So we need to think about what is the work he wants to do with me in this season to prepare me for another cycle of his feasts. I, I don't want to be standing there with, with nothing to show for the gift of life that he gave me on this earth. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.